turn please, turn please to Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. If you're using a pew Bible, of course, it's easy to find. It's the last book of the New Testament, the last book of the Bible, page 1655. Page 1655. Revelation, chapter 1, reading the first eight verses. Again, my friends, this is the Word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've already noted in this series in the book of Revelation that it is a difficult book. And we have noted, but I will mention again, that as we consider it, we must do so in the context of all of Scripture. We read today from Daniel chapter 7, which is another example of what we call apocalyptic literature, the, the unveiling, the revealing, but at the same time, at the same time, the, the sort of mystery, there's a mysteriousness to it. And so there we have the apocalyptic literature as a reliable guide for our interpretation. One must be careful not to be either literalistic nor fanciful, speculative. But notice in chapter 1, verse 1, that Christ has signed, has signified this revelation. In other words, he uses symbols, he's using signs, he's painting a picture or pictures for us with words so that we can understand some of these very deep 
truths. But any symbolism, of course, must be based on Scripture's teaching. This book, as verse 1 says, the very first sentence, is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means at least a couple of things. Uh, One is that this is the revelation which Christ has given to us, which Christ produces, if you will, which Christ institutes. But it is also true that the focus of the prophecy is on Jesus Christ. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ. And so the focus then is not on things that we off, that people who look at this book often think about. They talk about you know, all the symbols and you know, what do these mean in terms of enemy missiles and tanks and so forth. No, my friends, the focus is on the Lord Jesus. The focus is on the Lord Jesus in his glory. And that's what we have then in this book and what we have in these first several verses. Now last week we looked at the salutation, the greeting, the greeting in uh, verses 3 and following. John uh, is the one, John, or verse 4 I should say, verses 4 and following. John the beloved apostle whom Jesus loved, who leaned on his breast, the author of the Gospel of John, and so forth. That John was writing to the seven churches in Asia. They will be named uh, particularly later on. These these, uh, seven churches then uh, will be uh, particularly uh, mentioned in verse 11. But these are, the, this is basically the current, the, today's nation of Turkey. And so children, be sure, if you haven't already, be sure to look at the map later. Miss Amy will be glad to help you, or Miss Penny will be glad to help you, to point out the area of the world that we're talking about here. But what's important to notice, even though the, this was written particularly to those seven churches, or perhaps groups of churches, nevertheless... This message is for us today as well. You notice in verse 4, grace to you and peace. This is what we need, of course. We need God's grace. We need his peace, the peace that comes through the gospel of Christ. And notice also the Trinity very clearly. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. Reference to God, particularly the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the Holy Spirit. Not literally seven spirits, but the idea of the the number of perfection there. And from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the faithful witness, the one who testified before Pontius Pilate, testified a good confession in terms of his person and work. The one who rose from the dead is the firstborn from the dead, the one who is the ruler over the kings of the earth. And last week, you may recall, I made the point that there are political implications to Christianity, not that God is a Republican or a Democrat. He is neither. But rather, all laws, all policies, are subject, are either good or they're bad. And all are subject to the rule of King Jesus. And the rulers of this world will someday have to give an account for what they did. And particularly, they will have to give an account if they persecute God's people. Well, that's the salutation as John is greeting the seven churches by the power of the triune God 
But now, in this context, now we go on to points 2, 3, and 4 today, uh, namely the doxology, the praise to God, point 3, Christ coming, and point 4, Christ's eternal majesty. So in terms of this doxology then, notice what he says here in verse 5, towards the end of the verse, to him, let us say praise, okay, praise is going, to him who loved us. To him who loved us. Notice it's in the past tense. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, it means that Christ loved us from before time began. Christ loved us, loved you and me from before time began. He also loved us at the time of the Incarnation when he subjected himself to being born as a, as a baby to being conceived, indeed, in the, in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and then to be born of her. And so he subjected himself to come into this world as a little, tiny, helpless baby. That was part of Christ's love. He loved us during his life of ministry. Uh, do you remember from uh, John uh, chapter 13? Remember from John... Uh, chapter 13, in which uh, Jesus uh, says, now before the feast, or is said of him, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, what did he do? He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And what did he do? Children, he washed the disciples' feet because he loved his disciples. And he did that also for us as well, to show his humility. And his service, the Son of Man, came into the world not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He showed love for us when he underwent temptation. He underwent temptation at the, uh, in terms of the devil, not just the 40 days, but all throughout his ministry. He did that because he loved us. And my friends, he especially loved us when he went to the cross. In Galatians 2 and verse 20, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2, we read and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And so 
Here we find praise in Revelation 1 being given to Jesus Christ, the one who loved us. But my friends, he is the one who loves us still. Think of all the providences of life, all the ups and downs, all the difficulties of life that we go through. Even through those things, Christ is showing his love. Remember that when God chastises us, he's showing his love for us. Even when he corrects us, when he chastises us, when he puts us through difficult times, it is showing the love of God. Indeed, Christ is showing his love to us. And he loves us still as he is bringing us to glory. And so I want to stop here just for a moment and ask, do you really appreciate Christ's love for your soul? Do you really appreciate Christ's love for your soul? Has his love so gripped your heart as to provide motivation and guidance for your actions? The love of Christ, the one who loves us, the one who loved us by going to the cross. And so we see then his love, but we also see freedom from sin that he provides to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now it's possible that this could be translated as the one who loosed us, freed us, or as we have it here in the King James, washed us. And of course both things are involved. Sin's stain must be washed by the blood of the Lamb. We need the blood of Christ. You know, you get, you get a stain on your dress or on your pants or whatever, and you're, you're all concerned about that. What do you do? You take something cleaner, you try to get it out. Well, how can we get out the stain of sin? There's only one way. It's through the blood of Christ. And so he who washed us, and in washing us, he who loosed us, who freed us, who liberated us from sin, from its guilt, so that we no longer have to fear coming before God because he has pronounced us not guilty through his Son. And so from its guilt from sin's penalty, but also from sin's power and ultimately from its corruption. We are not perfect in this life, but someday, my friends, we will be perfect. And we are liberated from sin as a result of his sacrifice at the cross. <coughs> that cleansing and freeing work comes through his blood. And never forget, never forget, that Jesus had to die for our sins. There was no other way for us to be saved. He had to be a sacrifice on that cruel cross. God could not simply have, by speaking it, forgiven our sins. The soul that sins, it shall die. There had to be a sacrifice for sin. And that sacrifice is found in Jesus Christ. If he did not die for us, we would be 
doomed to hell forever. But he has cleansed us and he has freed us by means of his blood. And so freedom then from sin. But not only love and freedom from sin in terms of this doxology, but do you notice what he goes on to say? And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Kings and priests. Now notice, notice the progression of thought here. Christ loved us, leading to our freedom from sin. He paid the price. And now implying our service to God. We have been freed in order to serve God. In terms of kingship, Christ or God made us to rule. God made us to have dominion over creation. Genesis chapter 1. Let them have dominion. Man, let man, male and female, Adam and Eve, let them have dominion over the earth. Let them exercise authority over the earth. By the way, children, you, know, you don't think about this very much, about being a king, uh, about having authority, but that's basically what it's talking about here. You have authority in this world. Now, none of you, none of you children is in government service yet, as far as I know. But here's the thing. You exercise authority in various ways in your life. Did you know that? Think about this. How you keep your room. Did you know that? Are you exercising dominion over your room and how you're keeping things straight and how you're making your bed? Or are you not, perhaps? Well, that, even something as simple as that is an exercise of authority over creation. But of course, what we have here is something even greater, as we will see. That was the way that we were made, to be kings, to have authority, to be stewards of God's creation. But now, what, God, what, what is being said here is that Christ has redeemed us, has saved us, so that we, in a heightened way, in a higher way, can be kings and priests. How do we do that? Well, some of the ways in which we do this is overcoming the world and the flesh. So we need to exercise authority in our own lives, don't we? We need to make sure that our sins don't rule over us, but rather that we exercise authority over our lives. We are those who are to conquer Satan. Romans chapter 16 and uh, verse 20, where Paul says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And so we conquer Satan. We judge the world and angels, 1 Corinthians 6. Don't, don't go to, to the law courts, Paul says, if you've got a dispute. Judge it yourselves in the church. You've got a dispute between two believers. Judge it yourself. Do you not know, Paul says, that you will judge the angels? Isn't that interesting? 
And of course, we develop creation by means of the talents which God has given us, but we do so in Christ, and therefore for the glory of God. That's why we go off to college, or go to tech school, or whatever it may be. Whatever it may be, we don't have to go to college, but whatever it may be, you want to develop your talents, your gifts that God has given you in order to exercise dominion over this world. So, kingship, but also priesthood. What does a priest do? A priest offers sacrifices. Remember in Romans uh, chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, where Paul says, I beseech you there, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by how you think, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Every believer is a priest. And this can imply both our service in general and also our worship in particular. We offer the sacrifice of praise here in church, but we also offer to God our talents. We offer to God our talents. We offer them back to him so that we can do these things for his glory. Notice that kingship and priesthood are inseparable. Did you notice that? We are made kings and, and priests to God and his Father. We are consecrated to God for his service. A priestly king is a servant king, serving. As one person put it, quote, a kingdom of priests in which all submit themselves to the living God and reign, rule in his name and under him over the works of his hands. But my friends, we have been set free in order to be priest kings. Through sin, we became rebel kings, serving the devil and ruling apart from God's will. But in Christ, we have been delivered out of darkness and made a royal priesthood. First Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that leads us to the next point, doesn't it, as we look at this doxology, this praise, this praise to Christ in terms of his glory and his dominion. You see, John here now waxes eloquent, does he not? As he says, not only has he loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, what's the conclusion? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Glory, of course. Think of, think of a light bulb. Think of the sun. 
Do you ever try to look at the sun? Don't do it. Do not do that, children. Don't do that. Why not? You can't stand it. It'll burn your eyes, right? Well, that's sort of the picture that you have of glory, the radiation of God's infinite goodness and perfection. And only the Creator possesses that glory in Himself. But the highest and fullest revelation of that glory is in Christ. And he is the one who is not only the Son of God, but he is the one who humbled himself and has now been exalted as our Savior. He is, of course, his dominion then, not just glory, but dominion, his power, his ability to handle all situations, the fact that he is sovereign over all things, the fact that he rules over all things. He rules over all things in the church. He rules over all things in the universe. He rules even over evil forces. He rules over all. He is sovereign. And he is sovereignly directing all things, heading towards the end when all things will come together. As mediator, this dominion is ascribed to Christ. It is, he has been declared to be the Son of God with power. But notice what he says here. Who has loved us, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen is, is to say, so let it be. It's, it's a way of proclaiming, yes, absolutely, indeed, it is true. Amen. And it is forever and ever. Just as we read from Daniel chapter chapter 7 today. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. Then to him, to Christ, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So, my friends, then we see today the doxology, but now more briefly, we see as the third point of this text, first point, of course, being the salutation and the doxology, and now the third point, Christ coming. Christ coming. Notice the, in terms of the coming itself, we are told in verse 7, Behold! Behold! That's a way of getting your attention. Behold! Pay attention! He comes with clouds. He is coming with clouds, which are symbolic of majesty, but also symbolic of judgment. Symbolic of judgment. Again, Daniel 7, verse 13. And behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Remember a couple weeks ago, we read Ezekiel chapter 1? There, that amazing passage. Again, you had clouds. You had clouds. Psalm 97. Psalm 97 and verse 2. Psalm 97 and verse 2. 
clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And of course, Jesus says, when he's on trial, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Notice the results of Jesus' coming. Every eye shall see him. It's not going to be a private affair. Every eye shall see him. Particularly those who pierced him. When was Jesus pierced? At the cross. He was crucified by his enemies. Even those who pierced him. But this is not simply a reference to those people back 2,000 years ago. But by implication, it is all who oppose him are his enemies. All who would take up the spear, if you will, if they had the chance. And all kindreds, all the tribes of the earth, all the, we could say, the people groups, all the races, if you will, will mourn because of him. They will, or they will wail. They will weep and they will wail because of him. This is the reaction of those who still rebel. This is the response of horror. There are no tears of repentance, but rather weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in bitter anguish against Jesus. A look of terror on the face from a heart of hatred and despising. And having said this, John says, even so, amen. And my friends, let me ask you, do you agree with God's judgments or are you embarrassed by them? When you go to college, when you're in high school, when you're at work, and the subject of Jesus comes up or of religion comes up, are you embarrassed by God's judgments? Or can you from the heart and publicly say, even so, amen. But then fourthly, having seen the, having heard the salutation, having heard the doxology, having witnessed, as it were, the coming of Christ, we now fourthly see Christ's eternal majesty. Notice his eternal nature. He is, as he says here, the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. So we would say from A to Z, or for the Greeks, from Alpha to Omega. I am, Jesus says, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of all things. I am the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This harkens back to verse 4 with a reference to God, showing, of course, that Jesus is God. He is the Almighty. He is the Lord God who says all these things. And so we see then his deity, the deity of Christ. 
He is the one who is almighty. I have two points of application today. The first is this. Take comfort. Take comfort by having such a Savior as this. You see, we, we look at ourselves, my friends, and often we look at our sins and we say, how in the world could I ever have my sins forgiven? Right? How in the world? How in the world? My friends, Christ is the one who has loved us. Christ is the one who has loved us. Christ is the one who is the Almighty, who not only is a willing, but also a faithful and capable Savior. He's not just the person on the beach, and I can go out and save that person from the surf. Christ is the lifeguard who has the not only the willingness, but the ability to go and to save us. Take comfort by having such a Savior as this who has loved us. But secondly, by way of application, if you are still in your sins, in other words, one of the wicked portrayed here, be terrified. Be terrified. For the day of grace will someday be past, and only judgment awaits those who do not repent. And if you are not in Christ when he comes back, you will see him, and you will be terrified. You will mourn. You won't rejoice. You will mourn because of him. You'll want the, you'll want the, the rocks to cover you. You want to be able to hide from him, and there will be no hiding. It'll be a day of gloom and judgment for you. But our only hope then, your only hope, our only hope, is that the one who was pierced. For it was by means of his being pierced, it was by means of his sacrifice at the cross, it was by means of his shed blood, it was by means of his taking the penalty for sin upon himself. It was by that means that we have the hope of salvation. And so I call you, my friends, today to faith in this Savior. Don't let this moment, don't let this day, don't let this moment pass by without turning your heart over to Christ. For indeed, he is the one who is the Alpha and the Omega the one who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. He is the one who has loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take this message and would apply it to our hearts. We pray, Lord, for anyone here who is not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord, that thy spirit would pierce the heart of that person, would convict of sin, would give that person no rest until
until he or she is resting in Christ. So be pleased to do all of this for the glory and honor of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.